Thank you, Ross. Uh, let me just explain what, what happened. <laughs> so there's a frequency thing that's been going on, I don't know, with maybe like neighboring buildings. So last week in Great Preach, the frequency kind of caught as well. And today, apparently it was a 1970s song that came up. Uh, I don't know who's listening to that, but good on them. Uh, which leads us to my second quick announcement. Uh, we will be moving uh, spaces. <laughs> that, that's, we've decided that before the frequency thing, but the frequency thing is making us more anxious to move. We're going to be moving to Chiputra World in the beginning of October, and, uh, uh, and, and hopefully it will be done by then. I think October 1st is Sunday, so it's going to be the first Sunday of October. Uh, that is a plan of when we will move. And you know how when you're, you're at the end of your lease in a house and you're like, you know what, I'm just not going to fix this right now. We're just going to ride through. Uh, so that's kind of where we are right now. Um, so just be patient with us and work with us. Um, and then when we get to the new spot, hopefully at least the music they'll be playing we, will be better. Uh, so when the frequency hits, um, or no frequency at all. Last announcement before I start. Uh, our Mercy Ministry, in which we're partnering with uh, Panteasuan Karnakasi, our next meeting will be in, on August 26th. If you are a volunteer, you have been notified of that day, way before. Uh, just, just a reminder, August 26th, we'll be doing another event with them, uh, and we'll know exactly what the event is and where the place will be by August 19th, so a week before August 26th. Um, also, just want to announce that we're going to soon plan on parting with the second uh, orphanage. Uh, we're doing this because we have, we have a lot of people that want to... Um, uh, we have a lot of people from this church, which we're so thankful about, who wants to help with uh, Karnakasi, and we just have more than we need. So I think we have enough for, for a second orphanage to partner with. And we have a whole plan for that later that we can tell you. But that's exciting. Uh, if, if you're not yet a part of the Mercy Ministry and you want to sign up for it, again, up front, there's a sign-up sheet for it. Put your name, information, and we'll contact you for that. All right? Okay. Let's begin with the sermon. This week, we're going to continue uh, in the book of John. Last week, Gray finished chapter 5, and today we're going to be beginning in chapter 6. Now, throughout the book of John... We've been studying different chapters. We've been studying various events in Jesus' life and ministry that John records. Yet, John, in a very skillful way, although there are so many events that he's recorded, he ties in all of these events with the main thesis, with the main point of the whole book. Do you remember what the main point of the whole book was? The foundation of it, it's found in chapter 1, that Jesus the light of the world, came into the darkness of the world, and yet the darkness rejected him. That is the theme, that is the foundation of the book of John. And throughout the book, if you remember, John has recorded all different types of rejections, all different types of darknesses, and each rejection is connected to a type of darkness. Each type of rejection is connected to a type of Blindness. Let's briefly, very briefly go through them again just so that we're reminded. Chapter 2. You remember Jesus had a conversation with the Pharisees and with Nicodemus. The Pharisees were people who are very religious, very moralistic, and they thought that their religiosity and their moralism made them not need a savior because they thought they can save themselves by their religion, by their moralism. They were darkened. This rejection is darkened by self-righteousness. You see, we reject Jesus in this darkness of self-righteousness because this darkness of self-righteousness blinds us from our sin, blinds us from our need of a Savior. And then you move forward, you go to chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4, you see a Samaritan woman, 
uh, this woman was darkened by self-pity. She thought that she was too sinful for Jesus. She thought she was too dirty to ever receive Jesus. This type of rejection um, uh, blinds us from seeing the extent of God's grace, of just how gracious he is, of just how far he'll go to save us, and just how, dir- how, how dirty he's willing to get to save us, who often think we're too dirty for him. And at the end of chapter 4, uh, we see the people in Galilee, who were darkened by self-absorption. The Pharisees were darkened by self-righteousness. The Samaritan woman was at the beginning darkened by self-pity. And the people of of Galilee at the end of chapter 4 were darkened by self-absorption. If you remember, they wanted Jesus. All they wanted Jesus for is so that he can do miracles that will solve their immediate earthly problems. That's all they're interested in. They're so preoccupied with miracles and Jesus meeting their earthly needs. And this sort of darkness of self-absorption also has a blindness associated to it and i think our passage today can be categorized i think as a more in-depth study of the third type of rejection i just mentioned earlier the rejection of self-absorption many of us including christians i first and foremost fall into the darkness of self-absorption of wanting to use jesus as a mere tool to meet, miraculously maybe, our immediate felt needs. And John explains in a more detailed way, how is it exactly that we can be blinded and what we're blinded from when we are so preoccupied with the miracles of God rather than the God of these miracles. So let's get into the passage and let's see what John is trying to tell us in regards to the temptation of being preoccupied with earthly immediate needs. Three things. One, how this darkness blinds us. Two, what this darkness blinds us from seeing. And three, what kind of king he is to the blind. What this darkness blinds us, how how this darkness blinds us, what this darkness blinds us from seeing, and what kind of king he is to the blind. Let's pray, and then we'll begin in our first point. Father, what an amazing privilege and opportunity it is Uh, to both be teaching and learning from your word. And Father, as we do so here, we are reminded um, by what we learned in our liturgy earlier that any good thing comes from you. And our confession of sin, that anything, any intellect, any heart change, any attitude or behavior uh, uh, change, any growth towards you must be from you. So Father, we beg you that you would keep our minds and our intellects attentive For you have revealed yourself in your word with human language and you'd keep our hearts soft and slow that we'd be humble and we'd learn from it and that you would allow that to affect our everyday lives. That we may be those influence, submit under the creator as true joyful creatures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, point number one, how this darkness blinds us. So the last event uh, before this miracle today. In end of chapter 5, what uh, Gray preached on excellently last week is that Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, right? That's how chapter 5 ended. And chapter 6, verse 1, begins with these two words, after this. So it's easy to assume when you read chapter 6, verse 1, that the event described in chapter 6 happened immediately right after the end of chapter 5. So after Jesus talked to the Pharisees, he immediately went and did this miracle. But, actually, quite some time has passed. 
from the end of chapter 5 to here, the beginning of chapter 6, perhaps a few months. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 4. It says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Okay, real briefly. The Passover is an annual celebration, a reminder for Israel of how God delivered them from the slavery of Egypt in the Old Testament. If you remember the book of Exodus, very popular story of Moses leading Israel out of the slavery of Egypt for 430 years into the promised land of Canaan. And God in Exodus said, uh, do this Passover celebration annually once a year to remind you of the freedom I've delivered you to and from the slavery I've delivered you from. So this Passover, the Passover is first mentioned in the book of John in chapter 2, okay? And now it's mentioned again the second time in our passage today, chapter 6, verse 4, saying that from chapter 2 to chapter 6, how long was it? One year, right? Because it's a Passover is an annual celebration. It happens once a year. So chapter 5, maybe a few months after chapter 2, right? Jesus uh, uh, did a miracle during the Passover in chapter 2. A few months happened, chapter 5, and now we skip all the way to the next Passover in the next year. So quite a few time, maybe a few months, has passed at, from the end of chapter 5 to the beginning of chapter 6. And apparently, during that time, at the end of chapter 5 to the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus has been healing a lot of sick people. How do you know that? Look at verse 2. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So straight away we see here the reason why people, this crowd, was following Jesus was because for the past few months, they've been seeing Jesus healing sick people. More specifically, the reason of why they followed Jesus, because they saw how Jesus could miraculously meet people's immediate felt needs, in this case, sickness. And they wanted Jesus to do the same for them. Which, by the end of the passage, we'll see Jesus disapproving this motivation of following him. Now, let me just say this before we enter into uh, uh, further into the sermon. I'm not demonizing our desire to want to meet immediate felt physical needs. I don't know what type of immediate felt needs some of us may have in this room. And I in no way want to undermine the seriousness of them. Some of us may be sick, or maybe some of us know someone who is sick. I just found out a few weeks ago, a few months ago, you don't know this person, so, but, but I found out a few months ago that a good friend of mine has cancer. Do I want God to take the cancer away from my friend? Of course I do. Have I prayed to God to take away the cancer from him? Of course I have. And I don't want us to feel like it's wrong to pray that God would meet our immediate felt needs or want you or your loved ones to be freed from illness or, or, or financial burden or any other thing. And that's not what John is trying to say here either. But what he is saying is if miraculous relief from immediate felt needs become the main drive of our worship, whether it be healing from a disease or deliverance from financial burden or relationship distress, if that's what we're mainly preoccupied by, John is saying, then we are blind. We are in the dark. And this is what John's rebuking here in this passage. Well, how, how do we know John is rebuking these people 
from following Jesus uh, uh, so that Jesus can miraculously heal them or, or do what else. Let's skip to verse 15. After the miracle happened, after Jesus fed the multitudes, uh, uh, we will see the crowd's attitude and approach to Jesus displeased Jesus and was disapproved by Jesus. What did they do? Verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus withdrew. He said, I'm not going to be made king by you guys. Well, why is that? Isn't Jesus king? Isn't he the king? Yes, he is. So why did he refuse to be made king by his own people? Well, because they wanted to force Jesus to be the kind of king that they wanted him to be instead of worshiping him as the king that he truly is. What kind of king did Jesus want to make? What, what kind of king did the crowd want to make Jesus to be? Let me read a commentary from the ESV Study Bible on verse 15 of why Jesus withdrew from the crowd. And it's on the PowerPoint as well. Jesus did not want to be pushed into the middle of an unruly mob that would march to begin a futile, spontaneous uprising against the Roman authorities. The people did not understand that Jesus' kingship at first, at his first coming, was spiritual. Back then, in, in first century uh, 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 Judaism, Rome occupied a lot of the world, including Israel. And this tension that we see here is mentioned all throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where it records Jesus' life. The Jews wanted Jesus to beat the Romans. They wanted him to be the kind of king, the kind of Messiah, who will meet their biggest immediate felt need, which is what? Freedom from political oppression. That's all this mob wanted. Their sole preoccupation was for Jesus to meet their immediate felt need. They followed him in verse 2 because they saw him being able to heal people from sickness. And they're wanting to make him king now in verse 15 because they wanted to be freed from Roman rule. Immediate felt needs. And Jesus withdrew. It was an act of disapproval. Why? Because if he gave in to them, if he allowed them to make him king, if he met their physical needs like that, he would be only playing into the darkness. Because this is exactly what the darkness wants. That's what the darkness is doing here. It's blinding the eyes of the people from the greater reality that is in front of them by making them so preoccupied with Jesus' miracles and ability to meet immediate felt needs. Now let me repeat one more time. Immediate felt needs aren't a bad thing. You're not a bad person to want an immediate felt need to be met by God. And to be honest, there's just some season in life where we may, we may are required to be more preoccupied with felt needs. For example, a season in life in which you or your loved one has a, a terminal illness. Or you and your loved one has, has desperate financial burden. It's not, it's not wrong at all to want to give more of your time and energy towards resolving that problem, depending on the season of life you're in. And John's not demonizing that. But what we're asked to be self-critical about in this text is that perhaps there may be parts of our lives that if we take a closer and honest look into, we, like the crowd, are trying to force Jesus to be someone he's not. One way to analyze this is if we look, if, if we take an honest look at our prayer life, what type of things we pray for, how we pray for them, what are we primarily fixated upon? 
if we take a deep and honest look at how we worship God, the themes that we see in our worship services, in our discipleship, what are these things primarily fixated upon? Are we worshiping, enjoying, and drenching ourselves in the reality of who God has declared himself to be? Or does our prayer life and our worship, are they engulfed in a preoccupation of God meeting our immediate self-physical needs? If it is, then John is saying, beware. You're falling into the same blindness, the same darkness that this crowd has of forcing God to being someone he's not. And if we continue to do so, we'd be robbing ourselves from something very crucial. We won't see. We'd be blinded from a reality that is so often hidden behind the darkness of self-absorption. What is that reality that we are being, that is hidden behind self-absorption? Let's go to our second point. What the darkness blinds us from seeing. And, and, and this is, I think, really beautiful in how John uh, kind of writes and, and describes this. John tells us what it is the crowd is blinded from, what we might be blinded from when we're so preoccupied with using God to meet our immediate felt needs. And John does this in a very artful way. He doesn't directly tell us. He doesn't say, you are blinded uh, or, or, or self-absorption uh, can blind you from da-da-da-da-da. He doesn't do it like that. He does it in more subtly, but more artfully. And you can see it by the specific choice of words he uses in how he describes this miracle. All right? The way he records this miracle of, God, of Jesus multiplying uh, the bread and the fish to, meet the, uh, to feed the multitudes, the words he chooses to use, the details he chooses uh, uh, to point out, and the details he chooses to leave out, all of it was done specifically by John to paint a picture to paint a picture that represents an eternally beautiful reality that the crowd could not see nor embrace because of their preoccupation of wanting Jesus as a tool to meet their immediate felt needs. Let's look at the passage one more time and see what reality is John trying to paint through his words that the crowd is blinded from. Let's put it together part by part. So imagine an empty canvas, all right? The first part of the picture in this canvas is verse 2. John described there is a large crowd, and the large crowd was following Jesus. So let's picture that in our minds in this canvas. There's a large crowd, and they're following Jesus. The second part of the picture, John says Jesus was on a mountain. Now, it's really interesting why John would choose the word mountain, because really, it was probably more like hills rather than mountains. The hills now known as Golan Heights near the Sea of Galilee uh, it was more like a hillsides than it is an actual mountain. But yet John chose to say mountain. Why? Was he lying? No. He was applying hyperbole to try and paint this picture in this canvas in the reader's mind. So now we have a few pieces of the picture. Jesus with his disciples on the top of a mountain, as John describes it. And below them, there's a mass of people, a mass of Israelites. Okay? We have that in our canvas. Then... John also specifically chooses to describe what time of the year it was in, in verse 4. It was when? During what? The Passover. Now, if you remember, I mentioned earlier, the Passover was an annual celebration that God instituted in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, where Israel is to be reminded of God freeing them out of the slavery of Egypt into the promised land. Okay, so the painting's starting to become clearer now, right? 
Jesus on a mountain with his disciples overlooking a crowd of Israelites during an annual celebration when God used Moses to free his people out of slavery into the promised land in the book of Exodus? What do you think that's pointing to? What imagery in Exodus does that that bring up? It's a very popular story, and some of you know this. Um, Can you think of another time in the book of Exodus after the Passover when someone with his disciples stood on a mountaintop overlooking a bunch of Israelites? Moses on Mount Sinai. Exodus 19. But this, this this isn't the only part of the passage that points back to Exodus. The miracle itself. What did Jesus do? He multiplied bread. He multiplied food to feed the multitudes. What did Moses do that in Exodus? He did. Remember the manna from heaven that miraculously fed God's people? And then after the miracle itself, it keeps going. Verse 14. Uh, read it. This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, the crowd said. What prophet are they talking about? The crowd was referring to Moses' words in Deuteronomy 18.15. It's on the screen. This is what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18.15, the Old Testament. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Okay, another connection to Moses. On top of that, this is the last one. Turn to your Bibles to the end of John chapter 5, or scroll to the end of John chapter 5. What were the last words of Jesus that John decided to record at the end of chapter 5, before this miraculous event in chapter 6? For if you believe Moses, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Okay, we started with an empty canvas. Now let's put this all together. In the way that John recorded this event, he's connecting everything happening at that moment with another event, the Exodus event in the Old Testament, where God delivered his people out of slavery into the promised land through his representative, Moses. And that's the picture he's trying to show you now through Jesus being on the mountaintop with his disciples, just like Moses with the Aaronic priesthood was in the mountaintop. No one else was about allowed to go up. The Israelites had the way at the bottom with the miraculous giving of the food, with Deuteronomy 18.15 pointing to Jesus. All these kinds of things. What, what is John trying to say to the readers here? He's saying to the readers, don't miss this painting. Don't miss this reality. Don't miss this truth. Don't be blinded by the physical immediate needs like the masses were. All they wanted was someone to perform a miracle to meet their immediate needs, verse 2 says. All they wanted was someone to be a king and beat the Romans and fulfill their immediate felt needs, verse 15 says. All the while, they're missing the greatest redemption story of all. They're missing this painting. They're missing their greatest need of all here. Behold, your mediator, the true Moses, the true deliverer. He's the one that's going to take you out of slavery to the promised land. He is your salvation. But that's what they wanted, right? They wanted Jesus to deliver them from the slavery of Rome to political independence. So what's wrong with that? That's what Moses did in the Old Testament, right? He delivered God's people from the slavery of Egypt into political independence in Canaan right? What's wrong of that? Why why did Jesus withdraw from that? Why is it wrong for me and you to want to be delivered by Jesus from financial distress 
into financial freedom? Why, why is that wrong to make that Jesus' primary role? Why is it wrong for us to want a freedom from earthly physical ailment into earthly physical health? Or why is it wrong for us to make Jesus some sort of political leader uh, to free Jakarta from all their political turmoil? After all, he is our deliverer, right? Why would Jesus withdraw from them? And why does it feel like sometimes he's withdrawing from our prayers? When we pray to him, when we ask him to relieve us, relieve us from certain immediate felt needs, is it... Maybe, here's what we might think, maybe, maybe my request of being relieved of my specific felt need isn't significant enough. It's too small for God. That's why he withdrew. No, that's not at all why. If you look at this passage, what did the crowd ask Jesus to free them from? They asked Jesus to free them from centuries of political slavery. Is that a small request? No. But yet Jesus still withdrew. So it's not because, so God's withdrawal of, or God saying no to us is not because the size of the request. Okay, I know. Maybe it's because my prayers aren't earnest enough. Maybe I'm just not asking him in the right way or I'm not, I'm not jumping up and down enough when I, when I pray for these things. Maybe, maybe that's why. Well, no, if you look at our passage, that's not the reason either. You think this crowd wasn't earnest when they asked Jesus to free them from Rome? They begged him. They prayed to him. They moved towards him in verse 15, described forcefully. And yet our Savior still withdrew. Why does God withdraw from our requests of meeting immediate felt needs? It's not because the intensity of how we ask. It's not because the size of the request. So, so why is it? I'm sure many of us have questions. I'm sure the crowd has questions as well, as in why Jesus withdrew from them. Was it because their prayers weren't earnest enough? Was it because their argument wasn't convincing enough? Maybe because their faith in Jesus' ability to save them from it wasn't big enough. Or maybe, maybe God just doesn't care. Maybe he withdraws from us simply because he doesn't care about me. And John's saying, no, those aren't the reasons why he withdrew. He's telling us the reason why he withdrew from them, the reason why he may be withdrawing from us or saying no to us for immediate self immediate uh, relief from uh, uh, felt needs is because he knew that if he gave in to their forceful demands, it would be the most unloving thing he can do to them because it will only further their preoccupation of meeting immediate, meeting immediate self needs, which were blinding them from the complete and greatest story of redemption. All they will see is Jesus. All we will see is God as some kind of tool to free us from physical illness or political distress and they might they may not see the part of the painting of jesus being a deliverer for them they would miss the whole point of the picture and there's a piece of the painting that was still missed by them even after john described all of this and actually this piece of the painting is so important and so hard to see that even the disciples themselves missed it Let's go to our third point. What kind of king he is to the blind. So now we've seen what pre, an over-preoccupation of meeting immediate physical needs can blind us from. What it blinds us from is this painting that, we have, that John has painted with his words of Jesus being the deliverer of his people out of slavery to the promised land. But here is the last piece of the painting that completes the whole picture. 
John does not only want to communicate to the readers the greatest redemption story of all that they're missing. In this picture, he also wants to reveal who Jesus is. And this part of the picture is so hard to see. Even the disciples missed it. Look at verses 5 to 6. John, uh, John here is describing Jesus when uh, he lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus asked Philip, his disciple, how can we get enough food to feed 5,000 people? Which, by the way, is 5,000 men, and it's probably referring to the, the male households. It's actually probably closer to ten to 20,000 people, not including the women and the kids. How, where are we going to find food to feed all these people? He said that to test Philip, whether or not Philip remembers who Jesus is. And the way Philip answered Jesus tells us he failed the test. He was so preoccupied with the physical realities, he forgot who he was talking to. Look at his answer in verse 7. 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. It was almost sarcastic. Duh, Jesus. 200 denarii, which is about six months of wages at the time, that wouldn't even buy enough food to feed them a little bit. What does this tell you about who Philip thought Jesus was when he answered Jesus back? Philip thought Jesus was some limited person who was limited by human means to accomplish his goals. Is this who Jesus is? A mere man limited by human means to accomplish his goal? No. Well, then who is he? One more time. John again describes this to us very artfully. Let's go back to our painting. Okay, our canvas that's now been painted a little bit. Let's go back to that. John is saying he's no mere man. He's something much greater. Look at verse 11. We see this in how John describes the miracle. Uh, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. Now, the way John decided to describe the way this miracle was done or the way it happened was very intentional. He included some details, and he didn't include other details. For example, here are some details that he did not include. He didn't include the exact way of how the bread multiplied. He didn't include the exact way of how the fish multiplied. He didn't include if, uh, how Jesus distributed them to the people because it said he's the one who distributed them personally. He doesn't say how. He doesn't, he doesn't explain those things. But although he left out some details, he very carefully picked other details to give. Look at verse 10 to 11 again. First, what does he record? First, he records Jesus asking the people to sit down. Second, he recorded Jesus taking the loaves and the fish and the food. Third, he recorded Jesus giving thanks for it or praying to it for the food. And fourth, he recorded Jesus personally distributing it to those who are sitting down. He distributed it. This is really interesting because this is step by step exactly how an owner of a house or a host would treat their guests back in the day. When a guest comes to the owner's house, the host or the owner would first invite them to sit down for a meal, take the food, pray over it, and then personally distribute it to the guest. What is John trying to say to the readers of this book? What, is, what picture is John trying to paint now in our canvas or add to it? He's saying, this here is no mere man. This here is not just a prophet like Moses. This here 
is the owner of these lands. This here is the host. This here is God. You think God needs 200 denarii to feed his people? How blind must you be, Philip? You are so preoccupied with the physical realities. You're missing it. This is the creator of the universe. This is the one who owns all things. He has come in flesh. He's not a prophet to deliver us from immediate earthly needs. He's God come in flesh to deliver us from something else. Now, our picture, our canvas might have been more complete. And this is how the crowd and the disciples maybe saw Jesus as somebody who's going to deliver them somehow from something. But although now we have a complete painting, we still have an unanswered question. Deliver us from what? If not immediate felt needs, what is he here to deliver us from? His withdrawal, God saying no to these people, tells us that he's not here to meet immediate felt needs, even something as big as centuries of political slavery. But it's still, we still haven't answered what it is God came in flesh for. What is he here to deliver us for? But if you think about it for a second, think about this act of withdrawal. This act of withdrawal in verse 15 actually is what puts all the pieces of this painting together. It's what makes it beautiful. It's what makes sense of this whole redemptive historical painting John is trying to describe here. It's what makes it whole. How does Jesus Christ withdrawing from the crowd answer the question of what it is he's here to deliver us from? Okay. Can you think of another crowd in the New Testament? who, like this crowd, also wanted to take Jesus by force. But yet this time, Jesus did not withdraw. He allowed himself to be taken. What event am I referring to? What crowd am I talking about? The cross. The mob who forcefully took Jesus to crucify him. Now, why would Jesus withdraw from a mob who is giving him an opportunity to free his people from hundreds of years of political slavery, but yet allow himself to be taken by this other mob to be crucified? Why? John is telling us, and Jesus is telling us, because our biggest need isn't for a king to deliver us from political slavery or any other immediate physical need we may have, but our biggest need is for a king who will deliver us from the slavery of our own sin by paying for it with his blood. That's the king Jesus is to the blind. He withdrew from this crowd who wanted to forcefully make him king, but yet allowed himself to be captured by another crowd who took him by force to crucify him. This tells us what we're enslaved by is not Rome, is not poverty, it's not even physical illness. It's our own sin. And Jesus later makes this explicitly clear in John chapter 8. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You do not need a king who wields a sword to deliver you from the evil out there. You need a king who is willing to carry your cross to pay for the consequence of the evil that is in you. 
That's the kind of king you need. We have many immediate problems, yes, but none of them compare to our ultimate problem, which is so often veiled behind the preoccupation of immediate needs, as imminent and as serious as those needs may be. We are not ultimately in danger of financial lack in an expensive world. We are not ultimately in danger of physical health in a medically limited world. We are not ultimately in danger of political oppression in a politically corrupt world. Yes, those things are big deals, but it is nothing, nothing compared to the actual danger we are in of being sinners in front of a holy and righteous God. That's our problem. Who will pay for our sin? Who will deliver us? Behold, the owner of this world, the host has come in flesh to deliver you out of the slavery of your sin, not with 200 denarii, with his own blood. That's why he said no to the mob who wanted to make him king and defeat Rome, but yes to the mob who was going to crucify him. Because this is the only way he can deliver his people from slavery out of sin to his true eternal kingdom. Let's end here. Am I speculating to say that I know all the reasons of why you may feel like God is withdrawing from your prayers of relieving you from immediate felt needs? No, I don't know all the reasons why. But from this text, I think it's safe to say what one of the reasons are. Perhaps, perhaps he's withdrawing from your request of immediate felt needs so that he can pierce through our darkness and show us there's a deeper joy, there's a deeper delight, there's a restful assurance from knowing him as who he is and not as the king that we often force him to be. He wants you to get to a point where you stop treating him as a tool, where the intimate affection between you and him does not fluctuate based on how much of your immediate needs he's meeting at a particular point in your life, but because you rest in the fullness and sufficiency of your eternal wellness, which he has guaranteed and sealed on the cross with his blood. Now, this darkness doesn't just blind non-Christians from receiving Christ as Lord and Savior. It blinds Christians as well. It blinds us from growing in our ability and our joy to experience the beauty of our Lord and Savior. You see, something is beautiful to you. Something is truly beautiful to you when it no longer becomes a means to an end. When that thing in itself is what you seek. For example... We spend money to buy music on iTunes or a Spotify account or at least the internet bandwidth to steal music from people, <laughs> which you shouldn't do. <laughs> Either way, we, we pay. Music is worth our money, right? We, we spend money for it. Why? It doesn't pay our bills. It can't heal cancer. It doesn't free Jakarta from all its political problems. So why spend money on something that can't benefit us as a practical tool to meet another immediate need? Well, because you don't buy music as a means to an end. You enjoy music because it's beautiful in itself. It is the end. You see, it's not a means to accomplish something else. It's not a stepping stone 
but it's beautiful, it's majestic, it's joyful in itself. And a Christian will never grow in their joy in Christ. They will never find joy in his true beauty if they keep using him as a means to accomplish something else. So if you ask me to summarize what it is the darkness of self-absorption blinds us from, it blinds us from seeing and enjoying God by consistently seeing him as merely a practical tool and not someone who is beautiful. That's what it's robbing you from. And though at this moment it may be hard to believe, um, what Jesus Christ and John here is trying to communicate to us by showing how he withdrew from the mob, he's saying that there is a greater joy beyond even freedom from centuries of political oppression. There's a greater joy you can find in him if you can just stop looking at him as a tool, as a means to an end. That is the joy God would be withholding from you if he gives in to every single practical request you require of him. Is God beautiful to you, or is he merely practical? Let me end here. If you're here today and you're still exploring the gospel, you're, you're thinking about it, you're learning more about it, you want, to have, you want to know more about it, you're asking questions about it, I hope through our passage today you can hear the gospel message loud and clear that Christianity does not use God as a stepping stone to gain anything else, not even to gain heaven. If we view obedience to God as a means into getting to heaven, then God, therefore, would still be a means to an end. And he, therefore, will not be beautiful to you. He'll be a tool. I will obey you so that I can enter heaven. That is not what Christianity is about. That is not what the gospel is. The gospel says on the cross, God in Christ has already solidified our salvation. He's paid it to the fullest. Receive it so that now you can stop obeying him as a means to get to heaven. But because in receiving what he's done on the cross, we have been delivered from slavery of sin to the promised land. So now our obedience to him is because he's beautiful to us. Not useful. And the only way our obedience will not have ulterior, ulterior motives to it is only if our salvation was freely given to us in the first place, not as a reward for our obedience. And if you're here today and you have received Christ as Lord and Savior, and you are a Christian, then I pray that He will continue to grow you in your joy in Him as He persistently shapes you to become someone who relates to Him as beautiful and not merely as useful. No, we're not going to get there in one day. Be patient with yourself. You're not going to walk out of this room finding that miraculously. Maybe the Lord will have that to you. Good on you. But most of us will not have that. It'll take a long time. Be patient with yourself. God is patient with you. Take it one day at a time. Continue reminding yourself of this great redemptive history. When you read your Bibles, read it with the lenses of this redemptive history and how Christ has accomplished it for you. When you pray, pray with these lenses on. It doesn't mean you have to be so stiff and so scared about what you say and not say. But at the same time, just be aware of the state of your heart. What is the vocal point of my prayer right now? Is it him as beautiful or is it him as useful? And when you go to church, expose yourself to Christ's gospel-centered preaching 
be done and away with moralistic preaching. Be done with it. Christianity is not a 10-step program of how to make your life better so that God can do more things for you. Go to Christ. Demand the gospel. Demand him. When you leave this room, you should be absolutely certain that you are not the hero. He is. Expose yourself to that every Sunday. And as you're reminded of who he is, the beauty that he wants you to truly partake and enjoy in him, we pray, will increasingly be more. And throughout time, we pray, slowly but surely, we would all grow as his children, whose joy is increasingly found in him as ultimately beautiful to us and just not useful for us. Let's pray.